something. Uh, first things first. So following up with this uh, moving forward with the village. So so when Lori and I sat down in, in May, we sat down and had that conversation. And she, she said, man, this 40 hour a week to the 20 hour, this is not my thing. And we're like, I just, I'm just not that, whatever, right? So we talked through that. And I said, well, if you could see someone stepping into this role that's much more managerial in nature and but still has a love for children and all this kind of stuff, like, and this good, who would it be? And she said, Lori McMath. And so what's funny is I'm about to meet with Lori McMath. I'll sit down. I'm not going to name it to her. I'm just going to like, I'll just like, you know, you can like probe without, without letting them know. So I was asking her, like, what's going on, Lori Math? What's God doing in your life, right? And she said, while you were in India, Steve, with your team, God, I just don't know what's going on. She starts weeping, like, te- and I say weeping. It's like, it wasn't like snotting anything, but it's like tears coming out of her eyes, okay? Like, God's just stirring this thing with children, and it's like, and then just, you know, I, I got into camp, camp Adventure thinking, yeah, this is great, I can do this, but God's just like raising this passion and stirring this thing inside of me. It's like, it's all I could pray about the entire time you were gone, and it's like this whole stirring. I said, huh, interesting, right? And so I sat down the next week and talked to Lori Deal about it. I sat down and talked to our leadership team about it, and just, we processed and talked. And long story short, we offered her this managerial, this new position, and she accepted. So as of October, yes, as of October 1st. A very familiar face will be stepping into this, right? Be stepping into this role. And, and here's the thing for you. It's not going to affect how the, listen, the vintage, the village, I mean, Lori set it up and it's running like a top, right? That's like an old phrase that kid, that old, old people use kids, right? Like runs like a top. You're like, what is a top, right? Runs like a top. It's running well. So you're going to come in on Sunday morning and nothing's going to be that you have the same people with your kids, be checking in the men with this computer system that Lori helps set up. I mean, it's like, you're going to step in and only things going to be different is the face. But that you'll probably still see the same faces because Lori's going to be walking through and kids hugging on her over here, right, Lori Deal? So nothing's really going to change, right? So it's going to be the same type of thing, but it's just a different, just a different person stepping in and running and ruling over here over this, this new position that we've created in this new children's ministry. So what I would ask you to do is this. There are lots of things in this that need to take place, okay? Lots of things that, lots of things that not kind of like, these puzzle pieces that aren't quite fitting yet with all the whole scenario. So please be praying. Right now, Lori McMath is overwhelmed with stuff she has going on. Please be praying for her. She's got a lot on her plate. So just be praying for, this, for, for favor, be praying for direction, be praying for, for clarity and all that kind of stuff, and we would be uber, uber grateful. Okay? Y'all good? Now listen, Lori and I, Lori's over here now, We're everything that's going on, if you have questions or concerns, you can talk to either of us, okay? We're on the same page, everything going on, okay? So if you have questions or thoughts or things, just sit down. Don't freak out. Listen, don't get, don't bring us the freak out questions like we're just like, the world's coming to an end type questions. Don't do that. Just say, hey, would you help us understand? Okay? So move past your freak out. Come and sit down with us and have us a, a regular con- You know what I'm talking about, right? Because your freak out questions sometimes can be overwhelming. I'm just being completely honest. It's a family time still, right? So just come, work through that freak out part, sit down with us and talk through, and we'll process anything that you want to know. Okay? So with that, now we can dive in. We're going to look at, you can open our Bible. Bibles a little bit, but let's dive in. Joy in the journey we've been talking about for the last several weeks, right? This, this journey uh, of God shaping us into his image, right? So you had your moment of getting saved. That's what we call it, right? Where you, we said, you crossed the threshold from your personal kingdom living for yourself, 
and you stepped over the threshold, like you know, a door, like a door threshold. You stepped over that threshold into God's kingdom, into God's world, right? You were, in John 3, 16, you were born again. You gave your life to him. You submitted yourself to him and say, I'm no longer, listen, I'm no longer ruling my life. But every moment of every day, God, you are ruling my life. And you're not ruling it as a mean Lord or a mean boss, but a gracious, compassionate, and loving Lord, who when I get into your presence, I recognize first your excitement over me as your child, right? That, that, that leads me. That's what, what the primary way I view you. And secondarily, I know sometimes you have to come and correct me because you love me. And so we live in this place then, and we said, this is God's kingdom, Right? We've been born into a brand new existence, a brand new life. And we said last week, if that's the case, then, then heaven, listen, this is something we're going to wrestle with sometimes, that heaven for us, in a sense, actually began the moment we crossed that threshold. Why? Because heaven is simply the kingdom of God. And when we stepped in, over the threshold into his kingdom, then eternity began for us. It's this revolutionary idea. I don't get saved and just, you know, just fight against hell for the rest of my life until Jesus comes so I can enter into heaven. No, I've entered into his kingdom. And I'm now living in his kingdom. And we said last week then that everything that we do then impacts the kingdom where we live. That's why I said, so whether you're doing small things or big things, in the eyes of God, if you intend them to be worshipped to Him, if you intend it to be to bring glory to Him, then everything we do is a big thing. And we said the monotonous and the drudgery, the the, the, the cleaning up diapers and taking out the trash and and taking the dog out at like when it's thirty degrees outside to go to the bathroom. If we do it under the glory of God as worship to Him, then it is a big thing, and it positively impacts God's kingdom, which can then revolutionize how we view every second and every moment of our life. We never say, thank God it's Friday. We say, thank God it's right now. I get to worship him in the misery of doing this. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, like the mundane, the monotonous, and the drudgery sometimes is this awful. But if I worship him, he gets glorified in it, and it impacts the kingdom in a positive way. Because how many of you have co-workers who whistle while they work, and you're like, what's different about them? And they change the whole demeanor of everyone around them in the midst of misery of a boss that you hate. God love him. <laughs> and there's this glory. Like when I say that, let me say, I'm going to... Some of you are going to stone, don't stone me for this, okay? I'm going to give you my opinion right here. But if you could see in the spirit realm, let me tell you what happens. In my opinion, because I haven't been there, so I can't really say for sure, okay? But I think that if you were to be able to look into the spirit realm, right, the place where the angels live, and you see someone living as worship before God in all that they're doing, there would be this massive glow and the river of God flowing from every pore of their being, and everywhere they went, people would be stepping into the river and being touched, and healing would be happening. That's my opinion. You can call me, you can call me crazy and wrong, but I think that's what happens, right? So listen, I got some of my neighbors here. We moved into Seven Hills. 
for the sole purpose of spreading the water of Jesus through our being with everything that we are. And I tell you, my neighbors will sit there and say, Steve and Randall love us. They're weird sometimes, but they love us. They care for us. And we recognize that something happens, we feel comfortable and confident sitting down with them and processing life. And do you know why I did that? It wasn't because my neighbors were so great, but they are great. But because God's love was saying, my neighborhood is a place then for me to come and live every moment glorifying God by loving people around me. Listen, every moment of every day then becomes worship. How I, how I bathe my kids, not my kids anymore, but my little kids, right? How I, how I, how I take out the trash, how I, whatever, all the stuff, little, but it's big. If I glorify God, impacts the kingdom. And so this is who we are, this is what we're doing. But I would say, if we're going to live life with this happening, listen, then there has to be a perspective shift, right? There has to be a transformation of vision, a transformation of how I view life. So here's what we have, right? If these are called like pers- these are called like goggles, selfish goggles, right? In my personal life that I live, like my personal kingdom, where I'm the Lord of my life, and I get to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, I live with these personal goggles on like this, right? And everything that I view then is through the lens of these personal goggles and how it impacts me. So my world then revolves only around me. And what happens around me, I only... I only um, experience it through the lens of how it impacts me, which is like most of the world. But but what happens if we put on God goggles, right? We put on God goggles like this, and all of a sudden, I begin to see life through his lens. I mean, listen, when I was a kid, golly, I mean, I was like 8, 19 years old, in the back of my magazine, they sold x-ray vision glasses, Right? I mean, those things were awesome, not mostly, not always pure in my thinking of those guys. You know what I'm saying, right? But listen, I'm just being honest, family time, right? But x-ray vision, I wanted to have it. The guys were going, should I laugh at that? My wife's next to me, right? This whole thing going on, right? I like, I wanted x-ray vision. I could see through doors. I could, like, I wanted, to, I wanted to put them on and everything shift in how I viewed life and how I saw things. And what happens if we put on God goggles and all of a sudden we begin to see things like he sees it? We have this perspective shift. And all of a sudden, my thing that looks so big, to be honest, when you begin to see things through the lens of God, things just don't look as big and ominous as they once did. And so we put on these God goggles and begin to see life through a new perspective. Listen, I'll never forget, 7th or 8th grade, I forget exactly, I was reading a short story. And I can't remember the short story exactly, but I'm going to tell it to you because it stuck with me in this idea of perspective. It tells the story of a ship, shipwreck, captain, gets in a lifeboat with six convicts, right? And he has a gun and, a, and the only water that's going to be going on the boat. And they get down and he tells, and the, st- the story is his, from his point of view. And his paranoia that at any second these convicts are going to revolt against him, stop rowing, take the gun, take the water. So he's living in paranoia, like, I know they're going to get me, right? And they're all rowing. He just sits there and tells the story of them looking at him, 
looking at the water, looking at the gun, looking at him with just this, this anger and this, this venomous look in their eyes, right, as they're rowing and he's sitting there and all of a sudden begins to talk about, but I'm just fearful and what if I, now I'm getting tired, what am I going to do? I'm getting tired, what am I going to do, right? Because the idea, the man was like, I'm, I'm saving the water because the only way we're all going, the only way I'm going to survive is if we all survive. So I care about everyone here, right? I care that they survive. I'm not thinking about me. I'm thinking about others, right? I'm thinking about what's best for those in the rowboat because if they survive, we'll all survive. So he's sitting there with them in mind, and he knows that all they're thinking about is themselves. And all of a sudden, sleep begins to become too much for him to bear. And all of a sudden, he closes his eyes, and the last thing he's pretty sure that he saw was someone coming at him. And he said, enough is enough. Moments later, sometime later, he wakes up. And he kind of comes to, here's the water, the paddle hitting the water. And he realizes the water and the gun are no longer in his hands. He kind of like comes to like this, what's going on, what's going on? He looks up, and the biggest convict is now sitting there holding the gun and holding the water. And the man says, what happened? He says, well, when you fell asleep, I was the first one to get to you. And I got it because I was, I was waiting for you to fall asleep so I could grab the water and drink it and take the gun, and I could, I could survive. But as I grabbed the water and as I grabbed the gun, then all of a sudden it hit me that you were actually trying to save all of us. And the only way that we could make it is if we ration our water out. And so I sat here with the gun and the water in hand until you woke up so I could give it back to you and so that you could keep us safe until we get to land. You see, in this moment, this guy with his selfish goggles on is sitting there in the moment in pure selfishness, just thinking about survival of himself, right? Making it himself. And he fights everyone. He gets there, takes the water, and all of a sudden in the moment, there's this perspective shift. His vision changes. He all, under, he all of a sudden understands what this man was trying to do. He's trying to save all of them, right? And so he all of a sudden then gets on this man's side and says, no, I am here with you, and I am here with you to protect all of us, right? Moving from selfishness to this bigger other's focus, right? This vision of something outside of self. In a sense, we say, God goggles. This vision shift, this perspective shift. And God wants to raise this up inside of all of us. But the problem is we've been taught in science, right? Survival of the fittest. Charles Darwin, man, he knew best, right? It's, listen, survival of, the, the, survival of the fittest, right? The strong survive and the, and the weak die. This is part of it. That's nature. We say God designed it that way. But I'll say something, I believe, that in the kingdom of God, that is not true. In the kingdom of God, what we find is that the, in the kingdom, the strong fight for the weak, and they make the, the, the weak the recipient of their service and of their strength. We see this in Ezekiel 34, 16. God speaking, I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. Ezekiel 34, verse 16. Hey, put that on the screen for me, buddy. Ezekiel 34, verse 16. I will search for the lost and I will bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. 
God is a just God. He looks at earth and he finds those who are broken. He finds those who are weak. And he comes and says, I'm not here to push them down in my kingdom. I'm here to fight for them. To come with justice. Romans 15, 1 and 2. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Look at that again. Look on the screen and read this. Verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not just please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good and to build them up. You see the shift, the perspective shift, the change of the goggles that comes on in this moment, right? We naturally view life how it revolves around me, right? But that's not the goal of God's journey that we're on for us. Making this vision shift from survival of the fittest to fighting with justice for the weak and the feeble. Why? Because this is the vision. Listen, this was the vision that defined Jesus' life. Have you ever read in Luke? We're going to look at it in a second. Don't go there yet. In Luke chapter 4, ministry begins for Jesus. He's baptized and empowered by the Spirit. He goes out. He's tempted by the enemy in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. It's a miserable time, it says in Luke. But, in, but power, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Jesus walked back into Jerusalem. He walks in in Luke chapter 5. He pulls out the, the, the scroll from Isaiah. He reads the prophecy about the Messiah and says this. The Spirit, verse 18 and 19 of Luke 5, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me here to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of God breaking through and doing massive things. God's favor. Jesus says, listen, I came and here's the reason. If you notice, there's not much selfish in that. It's God goggles, seeing the neighbors, seeing the need of others, fighting for those, taking his strength in his kingdom and saying, my vision is to care for those that are in need and to fight for the oppressed. One story I believe we find in scripture that, 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 that paints the picture of God's invitation to us to this perspective shift is in Matthew 26. Have your Bibles, you can turn there. Matthew 26. This is a familiar story, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's going to pick up in verse 36 of Matthew 26. It says, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him, and began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, verse 38, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here while I can keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me yet, not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh or the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible this cup to be taken unless I drink it, may you will be done. Verse 43, when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. 
So we see in this moment, right, we get the picture here. Jesus is, he's, he's coming into the garden, and he asks the eight. There's only there's 11 of them, right, because Judas has already gone to betray. He takes the 11, comes up, gets to the outskirts of the garden, says, eight, you stay here. James, John, and Peter, come with me. They're going, woohoo! look at this. We are the men, right? And they begin to walk in. In verse 37, we see this. And as they begin to walk, he began, verse 37, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This sorrow is that type of sorrow that maybe you've never experienced in your life. It's that moment where you feel like you just can't live any longer, right? As if you're literally alive in the process of dying. Your head is exploding. Your heart, you just can't explain what you feel, right? Every part of your body is like atrophied and you can't move. You want to scream, but you can't, right? You're in this moment that you literally feel like you're in the process of dying. Right, And the disciples are going, what is wrong with Jesus? Because they've never experienced this type of emotion from him. They've never seen him this sorrowful. They're going, he's the king of all kings. He's the Messiah. He's about to take over rule of all the nations. What's he doing? And why is he doing this? And sure in the moment there's this discomfort. Have you ever been around someone who just starts to snot and tears rolling down and sorrow to the point because they're just bearing every part of their soul to you. Listen, I was 14, 15 years old at a family camp in Shaco Springs, Alabama. Lots of stuff happened there. And, and we're in this moment. I'm sitting in the third row. My dad's like on the eighth row. My dad stands up in the middle of this meeting, like 60 of us, right? And he begins to share. And all of a sudden, he starts with this moment. He begins to like having one of those snot tear moments. And my dad never has, had never, never had one of those, right? And I'm going... Uh, what's wrong with my dad, right? I mean, literally, I'm like, help him, Jesus, right? At the same time, being freaked out and scared because dads don't cry like that. And I'm having like, oh, my God, what's going on with him? Should I cast demons out? Should I pray for him? What do I need to do, right? I have no idea. And so I'm like, the only thing I know to do, I get up, whatever, and start praying for him, right? Because my dad, I'm like, I've never seen this, and the disciples are experiencing this type of moment, right? This very real and vulnerable and raw emotion motion of the Messiah, and they're undone, not knowing what to do. But the thing I've come to realize is this. People are only this vulnerable with, they, with someone who they believe is willing to identify with them and help them in their struggle, right? This level of vulnerability is, listen, this level of vulnerability is always an invitation, isn't it? When you're around someone who's experiencing this level, it's them inviting you in to experience what they are experiencing, to feel what you feel, and to see what you see. Why? Because they're taking down the wall and they're removing and saying, this is actually what's going on inside of me. And I'm inviting you in to my vulnerability to experience what I'm experiencing, to see what I'm seeing, and to feel what I'm feeling. Vulnerability is an invitation. And Jesus has laid his soul bare before them. And he comes to them in the midst of this and saying, Will you, verse 7, 37, will you keep watch with me? That's the invitation. Will you, I'm bearing my soul because there are real feelings and real emotions. Listen, you have emotions and feelings because you've been designed in the image of the living God. 
He has today, presently, emotions and feelings that are akin to ours. We've been designed fully and holistically in his image. And Jesus is experiencing real felt emotion. And the invitation to them is to come and say, hey, I'm coming in. Will you, as friends of mine, who invited in, keep watch with me? His desire for the three partners, right, to embrace the urgency that has so gripped him. It's an invitation to a perspective shift. To change their vision. To stop seeing things through these lens and begin seeing them through the lens of God. That's the invitation to see. And so I want to just name three things in this. I would, this is a great story. I encourage you to read it. But three things to see in this. Number one, and in the invitation here, but the invitation also to us is this. Jesus trusted them. Don't you, when you are vulnerable with someone, you're, you're bearing that soul and you're, you're, you're expressing a level of trust. Listen, this past couple weeks ago, I had a meeting with someone where I was very vulnerable. And I remember sitting there feeling very exposed. Have you ever felt very exposed in your vulnerability towards someone? And I remember that moment. I was like, I'm having to tear down these walls knowing that they could hurt me. They could fail me. But Jesus makes the invitation, right? Knowing, knowing them. Knowing this likelihood of failing him. And so often our invitation to experience the things Jesus experienced and to see the things and have a perspective shift, we sit there sometimes and say, no way Jesus can use me, right? Or, or I'm not capable of carrying the weight or I'm, I'm not good enough. And, and we live in this place and in that we invalidate ourselves. Jesus never does that, but we invalidate ourselves because we know what's going on stirring inside of us, right? That we're more than likely going to fail. And so we invalidate and say, ah, that whole vision thing from Jesus and that perspective It's not for me. And I would say when the temple veil was torn in two after Jesus died, and he gave us his Holy Spirit himself in Acts chapter 2, in that moment he's saying, no, for every follower of Jesus who crosses the threshold, steps into a new kingdom in relationship with me, I'm giving you the invitation to see the things that I see, to feel the things that I feel, and experience the things that I experience. I want you to intercede, which means I'm going to put my weight upon you and so you can experience what I experience. For your, my, his yoke is easy and his burden is light, which means he comes to give us a yoke and a burden that are things that are on his heart. And there's a perspective shift that happens in the midst of this. And this morning I'm saying to you, don't miss the invitation from Jesus to keep watch with him. Second thing we see is they, in fact, did fail. Right? They failed in their own strength. Isn't that beautiful? You're like, whoo, I'm glad, I'm glad Peter, right? The rock of the church failed. If he can fail, then by God, I'm not going to be I'm going to fail, right? In this moment, we see the disciples ultimately failing. Three times, Jesus says, listen, watch and pray. And three times, three times, he comes back and they're just zonkered out dead asleep, right? Completely there. And he comes in verse 41 and he gives what I would say a very sober reality for all of us who are human beings. Something that we need to to live in the reality of every moment of every day, he says, verse 41, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit indeed is weak. See, the spirit indeed is strong, but the flesh 
is weak. This is a distinction between man's physical weakness and the noble desires of his will. The spiritual eagerness that's accompanied by a carnal weakness, right? That, and so what it looks like is this. I have good intentions. Good intentions. Like I say, yes, I'm going to be with you to the thick and thin, right? My spirit is willing. My human spirit, not Holy Spirit. My, my human spirit is willing. My flesh, my flesh is not able. My flesh is so weak. Listen, we see it just a few verses before in verse 30, 31. Jesus speaks to all 12 of the disciples and says, This night you will all fall away on account of me. To all the disciples, you're going to fail me. You're going to fail me. I'm going to let you know you're all going to fail me tonight. Remember what Peter says? Peter says, no, no, wait. Come, up, come over here, Jesus. Just real quick. You know me. You know me. You know how tough I am. Nobody scares me, right? I will never fail you. And basically looks at him and says, actually, you're going to fail me the worst, <laughs> right? You're going to fail. You're going to, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny that you even know me, let alone be my follower. And sure enough, it happens, right? We see this spirit is willing. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I mean, how many of you ever made a New Year's resolution in your lifetime when your spirit was willing, but you didn't actually fulfill it because your flesh was weak, right? How many of you stopped stopped years ago making resolutions because you just knew you were never actually going to fulfill them. It depressed you to think about it at the end of the year, right? Ding, ding, ding. Me right here, okay? Thank you for raising your hand back there, Claudia, right? And this whole dynamic going down. Our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. So here's what I'm going to give you. I want to give you a gift. This is the gift. It's up on the screen. I want you to write this down. Take a picture of it. I want you to think this thought. Don't put it up there yet. I want you to think this thought every morning. I want you to say it. Listen, I want you to say this thought in your mind with great joy and great passion. Here we go. Put it up here. We must live every day with the assurance of our inability to fulfill Jesus' invitation and his commands in our own strength. We must celebrate that, right? We must live every day with the go assurance of our inability to fulfill Jesus' invitation. We can't. And we go, yes, Jesus, guess what today? I'm not going to fulfill this invitation again today. I'm not going to do it, praise God, in my own strength. See, that's the point. Our spirit man is willing. See, our spirit, the this, this spirit, our human spirit is willing, but our flesh is incapable of fulfilling this. That's why it says in, I think it's Isaiah, which some of you probably know better than I do. It says, it says our, our, our righteous acts are like filthy rags before him. Basically, saying our acts that we do in our own strength, they compare, they're nothing. They're nothing compared to the work of Jesus, the work of God. Which leads us to the third part. We celebrate then. So we say, I'm incapable, but... We, number three, we are now empowered by God's Spirit. We are now empowered by God's Spirit. Listen, Acts chapter 2, the disciples have lived this life of miserably failing. And he said, but I want you to wait for the promise of my Holy Spirit. I want to give you my Spirit, the Spirit that lived in me and that empowered me to live the life that I lived. I want to give to you. All right? And so they wait, Acts chapter 2, boom, here comes the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, in the moment, they now are empowered. I would say this and hear this. Followers of Jesus will never fulfill God's invitation unless we are empowered by his Holy Spirit. 
to fulfill the things that he's called us to do. The first time I read this, I thought about the pain of Jesus with his three friends not being there with him. But I looked at the disciples and I'm like, dude, dude, I, I know what you're going through, man. I know those times when I've had a big meal and it's late at night and I'm, Jesus calls me to pray at like two o'clock in the morning. And I know those moments where I'm like, yeah, Jesus, I'll pray with you. And then like about 2.15, I'm like, hey, Jesus, I'm just going to like lay prostrate before you in prayer, right? And God, it's going to be easier if I close my eyes, but I promise God, and like five minutes later, just, and Jesus just prayed through me, Holy Spirit, while I sleep, right? In my dream, something like along those lines. Because right? that's where we are. It's just completely in that moment, right? So I'm like, that's the disciples. That's them, man. They understand their pain. But I thought about this. Hear this. What if, just what if, what if Jesus set his disciples up for failure? What if the whole purpose of his plan in the moment was to set them up for failure. Knowing they would never do this, be able to fulfill this. Maybe we just set them up for failure so they would forever live with the knowledge that they had to have God's Spirit to succeed. What if He allowed them to fail in the moment so they would forever go, 30 years later, I remember the garden with Jesus, and I remember how He asked me to pray. And I remember how I failed him. And he told me that my spirit, man, my spirit was willing. But I could never do this and fulfill his commands in my own strength. And so every day I would say in some level they woke up saying, but they woke up with the full assurance of their inability to fulfill Jesus' invitation and his commands in their own strength. And so they woke up every day crying out for the Holy Spirit to come. I've let my kids fail on purpose because I love them enough to let them experience it so they would not make the same mistakes again. And forever these three said, Jesus, I will never, I will never by your grace and your strength fail you again. And so in this moment, their failure became the catalyst for future success. If you've read the Gospels, if you've read the, the letters of Paul ever, read the letters of Peter, you find these men who lived in the knowledge of their inability and their need for Jesus. Peter said, do not think that it was me who healed you. Do not bow before a human being. It was only Jesus through me and bow down and worship him, the Christ that you murdered. All about Jesus. It's about a perspective shift, even this week for me. Long week, lots of stuff going on, lots of heaviness, lots of burdens, lots of things. And I prayed, I took t- Thursday and fasted all day Thursday, right? Just telling you that I fasted all day Thursday. Like, God, I've got to hear you. I've got to be, I was like, I wasn't hungry. Like, God, I want breakthrough, but I'm, I'm hungry for your presence, right? That's what fasting is all about. I don't fast to get breakthrough. I fast for Jesus' presence. And when Jesus' presence comes, 
breakthrough is always a byproduct. Never fast for breakthrough. Always fast for the presence of Jesus, right? I was fasting for his presence. I was needing him. I was needing his presence. I wanted him to come near, right? I knew if he came, breakthrough would come. So that's like an afterthought. I'm fasting for his presence because I'm so hungry for him. I want everything he has. And I'm sitting there in the moment, God, God, what is going on? What do you see that I don't see? And all of a sudden, I saw a picture of a storm. And all of a sudden, I go, yes, that's the language for me. I feel like I'm in this storm. Listen, I've been on the water my, literally my entire life, a porta potty at the bottom of Lake Lanier. I've been in Lake Lanier and on the lake all my life. I've been in storms with eight-foot swells on Lake Eufaula in Alabama, Georgia line. I've been in a 17-foot boat going at 50 miles per hour, jumping those things, right, in this storm of wind and rain. I risk, I've, I've feared for my life, although I'm not really a really good driver, right? But I'm in those moments of fear and it's like anxiety. Right, and in the moment, I'm like, "Oh, this is too much." And so, this is the storm. It's what I feel. Jesus, thank you for naming it. It gives me language. And all of a sudden, my he just shifts my vision like this, and I see Jesus uh, in my boat. You know what he's doing? He's taking a nap. It's a Bible story if you can read it right. He's taking a nap, and I went. And at first, I was like, what are you doing, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I knew in the moment, he's like, Steve, if I can rest in your storm, then so can you. Everything shifted. I was like, oh, so nothing's going to change, Jesus, but it's not overwhelming. Yes, you can rest. It's not too much. I'm with you. You can rest. So I said, yes, Yes, I can. I sat back and said, thank you, Jesus. I, I need you to come quickly. There's moments you've got to press into Jesus, and then there's glorious ones. He just comes quickly. And he came quickly, right? I guess he can do my desperation. I was like, Jesus, then I will rest in the storm also because you're with me. See, I went from this to this, right? All of a sudden, he's in my rowboat. He's in my rowboat, and I'm resting with him in the midst of the storm. Remember, he prepares, Psalm 23, you've heard it in movies, he prepares a table before you to rest in the very presence of the enemy who is bearing down on you to destroy your life. First, listen, if you don't know Jesus, I want to let you know you have to leave the kingdom of self and cross the threshold into the kingdom of God. And he is a loving Lord and he's good and he's kind and he's compassionate. And then you recognize that your life changes and everything that you do has a kingdom impact. And in that kingdom impact, you all of a sudden have a shift of vision. And that shift of vision... All of a sudden, the thing that looks so dark and ominous 
is no longer that. I got to tell this one other story. I've told it before. And I got to tell it again this morning. Buddy, he says, I have this picture of a big black castle, which referenced my life. Black castle, storm, thunder and lightning, a big moat around it with alligators in it. And I said that, and God said, that's how you see it. He said, and he goes, and God said, but this is how I see it. He said, I immediately shifted Steve, and I saw a sand castle with a hand-drawn moat, a little bit of water in it, and this little kid coming and running and jumping up on down it. I realized that's God, because that's what my problems are to him. They're so small right because he's so big he says that's how you can view me in the moment of your crisis in the moment of drudge in the moment of monotony that is your life and that is me that's my vision open your eyes behold i stand at the door and i knock will you let me in to give you my goggles because i want to share them so you can see with my perspective and my vision And we say, Steve, what does that look like? It looks like Luke chapter 5. Everywhere that you go, you care for the oppressed, the prisoner, those who are struggling, those who are marginalized. You love your neighbors to the point that they think that you're weird and it can't be authentic, but it 100% is because you actually love them that much. And they say, you're weird, but I like being around you. Yes, because the river of the living God is flowing out of me. And you've been trying to name what it is. I just named it for you. And you too can have that river wherever you go. And everything that you do can have a kingdom impact, whether it's small or whether it's big, if you intend it to be worshipped and to glorify God. Let's pray. Father, we love you this morning. We know, Jesus, that our lives have a kingdom impact only because of you. And I'm asking, Holy Spirit, would you crush the walls in people's lives that are keeping you from them and keeping them from you this morning, God. This lie that they believe that they're okay and things are fine and I'm not as bad as that person. Whatever it may be, I pray, Jesus, they would reach the end saying, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried to figure out life, to get on my feet, to make it work, and it's just not working because your flesh is weak. Yes, your spirit was willing, but you can't do it and live life and make life happen in your own strength. God, awaken us this morning to this reality, God, that would shift our perspective forever. And that those who have no freedom and who cry themselves to bed every night would be set free, God, to worship you and to know you and to have the fruit of the peace of your presence and the fruit of the, of the love of your presence just overwhelming and cascading on them like a river of delights that never ends. Holy Spirit, this is your desire and this is your will. Open our eyes this morning, Jesus, because we cannot open them ourselves. Amen.